In this episode of the Religion Prof Podcast, I'm actually uh, having a conversation with uh, Brian Weslowski, who is part of a project, uh, well, he's the Vice President of External Affairs at the Center for Democracy and Technology, and he's part of a project that is exploring the intersection of technology and grace. And so we had a conversation at his prompting for a series of podcasts related to that project that he was working on and wanting to put together. And that series of podcasts is going to be uh, one that features clips from a number of people across a number of episodes. But he kindly granted permission for me to share our conversation, which we had, about technology and grace so that hopefully this podcast will direct people's attention to that podcast and that project. And that podcast and project will also direct some people here to hear the full conversation um, in all its detail. And so it was a wonderful conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to it. And uh, we spoke for an hour and could have easily spoken for longer. And so you will find that there is uh, a lot here that hopefully you will find as interesting and engaging as we did. All right. So Gracefully is a project started by me, Brian Wozlowski, Sarah Kaufman, who's the dance critic at the Washington Post, and Carice Giles, who is a UX uh, experience developer at iStrategy Lab, which is a design firm in Washington, D.C. Through Gracefully, we are exploring the very notion of grace, which Sarah defines as making others around you feel at ease, and how grace and technology Uh, can intersect. We firmly believe that we need more grace in the world, uh, especially in our digital world. So what we're doing through Gracefully is exploring places, unexpected or even expected places where grace happens, how technology can help all of us uh, experience more grace in our lives and hopefully live a bit better. Yeah, and it's just such such a fascinating project and intersects with a number of things that uh, I've been involved in and continue to be involved in and that I'm fascinated by. Um, I've had a longstanding interest in religion, um, including forms of religion that either emphasize or uh, maybe don't emphasize as much as perhaps we think they could or should, uh, the importance of grace and the centrality of grace. But the intersection with technology, I think, is something that uh, particularly fascinates me. I have a long-standing interest in science fiction, and so it connects with that, right? Can a, can a robot feel grace, um, mediate grace? Can you know, technology enhance grace, or is grace something that requires uh, literal face-to-face interaction? Uh, does technology interfere with grace and gracefulness, or does it uh, have the potential to enhance it? And what's the role of things like you know, computers, algorithms, uh, artificial intelligence, ranging from the current applications all the way to the, the far distant imagined future of science fiction. And so I think there's there's so much at that intersection that I think is really interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a bit, you know, through your work, what I'm always interested in is how, how people approach grace or how people define grace. How would you define grace in kind of a, the most general terms possible, uh, specifically through your kind of lens as a religion professor? Uh, well, certainly the, the emphasis on grace is probably most connected with uh, the, 
the Protestant tradition in the sense that you know, it's by grace you have been saved, that uh, language from the letters of Paul, but understood in a particular way. Um, and while there's a lot of variation and oftentimes even across religious traditions that agree about the importance of grace, what that means in practice, what it looks like can be very different. But on the whole, I think that uh, the defining characteristic tends to be that grace has to do with unmerited favor, which I think dovetails nicely with this idea of making others around you feel at ease uh, that you quoted, because in a sense, certain ways of thinking about God, depicting God, certain ways of being religious and being a, a religious person have the absolute opposite effect to that on those around, right? Uh, make people feel ill at ease with God, make feel, people feel ill at ease in a place of worship that's considered sacred, make people feel ill at ease, unable to be themselves, unable to be honest about who they are uh, around religious people. And what's interesting, um, and from an academic's perspective, very much worthy of study, but also ironic and from a, a religious perspective, perhaps deeply disturbing, is that within traditions that emphasize grace, one can still feel very ill at ease uh, in ways that I think are, are telling, are in, instructive, and may suggest that grace is being understood in a way that is ironically narrow or uh, should be subjected to some scrutiny to ask, is this really grace that you're talking about and emphasizing, or is it in fact something else on closer analysis? Fascinating. Yeah, no, I do think that, I mean, one of the things, uh, the point that you raise about people feeling a little bit ill at ease around religious folks is not one that I necessarily thought of. You know, when I, when I was preparing for our conversation, you know, I was more thinking about, you know, can technology, you know, bring people closer to religion? You know, is technology something that, you know, some people are leaving organized religion? I think the numbers are still such that most, that there's most organized religions are seeing a loss in um, people who identify with them or at least practice on a regular basis. Could technology be something to bring them back, especially as we have kind of a crazy hyper-connected world where people may want to find meaning? Um, but I, I do think that the unease people feel around religion is, is something worth exploring. Do you have thoughts, though, on you know, kind of where I initially was thinking about going in terms of technology, either driving people away from religion or potentially finding a way to bring them into religion? Yes, and I think there's a sense in which that's a natural uh, progression from uh, the uh, discomfort, the... Uh, lack of welcome that people sometimes feel in religious communities, um, either because they perceive themselves to be different or simply because they perceive there to be a lack of community, a lack of care, concern, whatever else it is. Uh, people moving away from organized religion, from the tradition of church attendance or other kinds of religious attendance that uh, we're seeing you know, a steady decline in in our society, is probably directly connected, uh, no pun intended, but directly connected to the fact that people can find community of like-minded individuals, uh, find a sounding board, find creative pushback, find welcome and acceptance in online communities, in virtually mediated communities. 
uh, for older people who didn't grow up with some of the technology that's readily available, there's a tendency to look at one's children, grandchildren, see them with their face constantly at a screen and think, these people are so disconnected, right? Because there's a, a screen in front of them. And yet, if you ask them, you ask the people who've grown up with this technology, if they're disconnected, they, they would probably be baffled at that diagnosis because what the technology is doing from their perception is keeping them constantly connected to the people that they care about most. Um, a circle of friends, uh, people that, you know, maybe an online community that they've never actually met in person, but very often it's people that they do actually know in person, but who they can feel connected with all the time. And so it's actually an extension of the way that we used phones uh, when I was a teenager, except that the stereotype still had you with this long spiraling cord connected to a physical phone that was then plugged physically into the wall. But I remember those days. <laughs> right? But teenagers were notorious for spending hours and hours on the phone, maybe not even talking, but just feeling connected with the other person who was uh, wherever else, you know, different neighborhood or a different part of the town or something like that. This is a natural outgrowth of that, but it, it works more efficiently and more effectively. And so whether technology seems to be disconnecting people or connecting people often depends on perspective. But one thing that is happening is that because people can find alternative means to connect with people that they perceive to be like-minded and they perceive to be welcoming, there is less of a felt need to connect face-to-face -face with whoever happens to be in your proximity. And that was historically, at least, a defining element of community, you know, life in a village, life in a town, and thus of religious community. Yeah, and certainly, you know, this you can extend that to a lot of different contexts where people are saying, well, no one's meeting in person anymore. It's always, you know, dating has changed, you know, how you, how you, you know, how often you gather with friends has been reduced uh, in some level because of technology. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense to go there too with religion. And so often a lot of uh, communities, religion was at the very center of that organizing uh, aspect of community. So um, really insightful. When you go a little bit further, are, do you think that there are ways though that technology, you know, I'm speaking mostly of kind of the major organized religions, or I guess it doesn't even have to be that, technology can help bring people back into the fold? Um, I would say yes. Um, an interesting question that I had uh, students in my uh, class on religion and science fiction think about the last time I taught it, uh, was about technology as it existed in the present and how it might impact religious communities. So if churches, if synagogues, if mosques, if communities of the traditional form were to decline to the point that they essentially cease to exist in anything like the recognizable form that they now have with designated buildings, right? people cease to desire to meet face-to-face -face in a very structured, rigidly defined way, right? This particular day, these particular times, mm -hmm. could religious community and religious identity survive essentially as what we might call a meme, right? Where people find community online and it, it passes from person to person, generation to generation, 
and it persists without that geographically located hub. And if we say no, I think that's, that's very telling. It suggests that our concept of what religion is and can be is very spatially defined and has maybe less to do with people and connection and has to be sort of imposed through you know, mandatory attendance in the geographical location and various things. If we say yes, then on the one hand, there's something very potentially terrifying about it just being so free-floating and there's, there's no clear anchor of the sort that we're used to that perhaps gives us um, a sense of security. But there's also something thrilling about the potential for this to exist, not because anyone says, be here at this time, week by week, but because people as human beings, as spiritual beings, sense the need for community and create it and find it, whether or not it's available in traditional forms. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I would imagine that, you know, the, the diversity of online communities might be, you know, religious communities or spiritual communities might be even greater, it's probably much greater than, you know, the physical spaces in other churches, synagogues or mosques that exist to have, you know, some of the conversations that you want to have, you know, it's not necessarily just people talking uh, to you. It's a, a more engaging and interactive experience. Um, but it also might lead to, you know, some different interpretations and some different findings. Do you think that, uh, you know, online communities might be morphing, not just how we get together, but also kind of our understanding of religion? Yes, I think so. Absolutely. Um, and to start with the example that you raised, um, in the realm of education, there's a lot of talk at the K through 12 level in higher education about what's sometimes called the flipped classroom, right? Where the traditional lecture is moved outside because you can record it. You can record it over the course of several years, edit it, uh, put in some snazzy graphics, take the best version of the lecture that you think you ever gave and make that the one that students watch from now on. And they can do that outside of class. And then in class, you can be having conversation and doing the things that it's easier potentially to do face to face. Uh, you can be working on projects, things like that. And so the, the traditional lecture and the traditional homework sort of switch places, which is why they sometimes call it the flipped classroom. And there's been surprisingly little discussion of the flipped church or the flipped synagogue or the flipped mosque or the flipped temple, um, at least in those terms. And yet it seems a natural place to go and to consider going, right? One of the reasons why people spoke from a pulpit or from a lectern at an audience was because that was the most efficient way, sometimes the only way of disseminating information. Now that you can find whatever you think are the best sermons um, in your tradition, or maybe even across a range of traditions, exposing yourself to more, uh, why would you go and listen to whoever happens to be the speaker in this particular geographic location, right? People are going to find it much more appealing to seek out the best of it where it's available online and you can watch that or listen to it. But what can keep the community and what can keep the um, educational process in the universities and the schools as well as a meaningful experience is that just watching lectures on your own is not an education and just listening to sermons on your own is not being a religious community. And so how might we integrate into the 
activities that we engage in with those who are in close proximity to us, more discussion, right? We watch the sermon at home and then we all get together and we talk about it, right? And we ask questions and we engage around it in interesting ways. And so I think that there are lots of interesting ways, and that's just one of them, in which this technology, as we're already seeing it used in some educational contexts in schools um, and universities, also has the potential to redefine in a positive and invigorating way what happens when religious people gather together in the same place. Fascinating. Another thing I'd love to get your perspective on that, you know, you're talking about right there just made me think about was um, kind of your notion of grace and how you, you've defined it and our notion of grace. Um, you know, people right now are talking about how technology is having a huge impact on all aspects of our life. Is there anything that people who are either creating technology, designing technology, can take from religion's notion of grace um, to improve either their products or services or the experience of humans who are using it? Well, I think when we think about grace in terms of you know, either product delivery or uh, customer service or any of those kinds of things, uh, it tends to be that, that human touch, right? That sort of customization of uh, the person who asks us what it is that we're looking for and helps us find it. And I think a lot of people would assume that technology is going to be bad at that. And yet there's a sense in which that's not necessarily the case, right? And we can see a little snippet of that where we intersect with uh, AI, artificial intelligence as it currently exists in the form of things like product recommendations, right? Where sometimes oh gosh, this technology scares me by how well it seems to know me and what I might be interested in, right? And of course, sometimes it's completely wrong, right? Um, and that may have more to do with how we have our security settings, you know, preventing information from reaching the advertiser, but may also have uh, things to do with the, the technology itself at the stage that it's at. But we've probably all at least caught a glimpse of the potential of some sort of technological service to actually seem to get to know us and get to know what our needs are and help us to locate things that we would genuinely find useful. And when it does that, right, then the technology does make us feel at ease. I think one of the interesting things is that some people have looked to technology to provide fairness, right, which of course is a yeah. Uh, something that at the very least overlaps with grace. You know, if we think about grace as it relates to judgment, as we relate to, you know, um, effort, that sometimes we think we're going to be uh, judged strictly, harshly, uh, that there's going to be no mercy. And of course, whether a machine can show mercy is an interesting question. Whether we want it to is another interesting question. We might want to talk about those things. Yeah. But oftentimes, people have hoped that machines by their nature, by their character, would at least be fair, right? And then we can add the extra human touch by maybe going beyond what's strictly fair to be gracious, to be merciful, and so on and so forth. It turns out that machines are not inherently fair because they are uh, designed and programmed by human beings who are not inherently fair. 
And so that's not to say that machines can't be fair, but they are not automatically fairer than their creators uh, because we have a penchant for encoding into what they do and how they do it, even without consciously doing so, all kinds of biases, all kinds of prejudices, all kinds of slants that we bring to things. And so machines can fail to be gracious and can fail to even be fair. But on the other hand, one of the things I think is really interesting is that in the process of looking closely at how our machines function and when they are unfair, when a police algorithm is unfair, when a, uh, when a computer program is uh, not providing services equally to people because of you know, where they live and thus oftentimes turning out to be along you know, uh, racial and other divides, that exposes things about us as a society, our values and the things that have shaped the form that, and the practical expression that the technology has taken. And so I think there is room for technology, if nothing else, to expose our lack of grace through the way it mirrors what, uh, what its creators, what its programmers are trying to accomplish and sometimes failing to accomplish because our biases and prejudices are exposed in the very process of trying to make our machines be fairer than we are. Yeah, and I mean, this is obviously something that's been in the news a bit recently, where, you know, people have failed to acknowledge that, you know, machines are not unbiased, you know, they are fed, they are powered by the data that we put into them. And we're not questioning, you know, the source of that data, you know, is there sample bias in that data that's making these decisions. A lot of times people take, you know, whatever the machine decides or spits out as, you know, almost the word of God, right? Mm. Uh, and that's a question that I have. I've seen a few articles out there saying that, you know, technology, and I think sometimes when they say technology, they mean more, you know, the internet or, or AI, kind of the, the big data systems out there. Are, is the new God, is the new religion. And I've seen a little bit, just, you know, just anecdotally of people putting complete faith in what a machine says or what the outcome is, uh, as you were saying, the fairness element of that. Um, do you think on some level people are viewing technology as God now? Uh, well, some are, uh, quite literally, I think. Um, and uh, that's true both in the sense that some people seem to hope that technology will cure all illnesses, all ailments, will eliminate all biases and things like that. Uh, but also in the sense that uh, it can be something idolatrous, right? Where the technology sort of takes center stage perhaps and distracts us from other human beings. So there are lots of ways in which uh, technology can be, uh, can take on a, a quasi divine status either deliberately and self-consciously or inadvertently and without people really thinking about the implications of their actions and where they focus their attention and where they place their trust. But to focus it back in on that you know, very specific application of technology, the trust that Google is sort of all seeing, all knowing, right? You get the language of omniscience applied to uh, Google as a search engine or to the internet or to artificial intelligence. And of course, on the one hand, it's, it's nothing of the sort because it doesn't 
know in the sense that we mean knowledge that a human being has. It may be processing data. It may be able to search through a much wider array of material. And in doing so, it may be able to discover things that we wouldn't notice. But is it knowing? Is it knowledge in the same sense that we mean it when we talk about a personal being knowing? And so there's some very interesting questions, I think, that, again, help us both to notice the limits of technology, but also to realize where those limits may be because they are made in our image and likeness to echo uh, a certain tradition's religious language. That's a very good point. Um, one of the things you did raise that I did want to circle back to, because you're 100% right, we should circle back to this, and this is all about, I guess, the limits or the capacity of technology, which does seem to be ever increasing. Um, this whole notion of, you know, empathy, um, can they show mercy? Can they go beyond the processing and analysis to understand feelings and sentiment? Uh, and it's a difficult one. You know, in my work at the Center for Democracy and Technology, we have a, a practice around free speech and we find, you know, the limits of kind of automating content moderation mm -hmm. because, you know, all of our kind of language processors you know, don't really get things like sarcasm. Memes don't really work. Um, sometimes they struggle to understand things in the context they're said. You know, it creates rules around, well, this word is always bad. Uh, and sometimes that's not the case, especially when you move into slang culture. Um, do you think it's possible for machines and AI to be developed in a way that shows empathy or mercy? And if so, is that necessarily a good thing? Yeah, that's that's an interesting particular example to to focus on because the abilities and limitations of something like you know automated censorship uh, are things that actually do enhance our lives, right? In the sense that you know, as somebody who's an active blogger, if there were not an automated filter that at least questioned whether certain things should go out online on my blog among the comments automatically or should be brought to my attention to allow me to make a decision without that i mean there would be a lot of advertising a lot of fake comments and if enough of that sort of thing gets out there then it interferes with the effort of human beings to genuinely engage and talk Right? There's only so much of a conversation you can have if it's constantly being interrupted either by spam or by hatred or by vulgarity or by whatever else it is, right? or simply irrelevant content that is being put out there by a, a bot that is you know, let loose on the internet to advertise Ray-Ban sunglasses or whatever else it might be right? that pops up in there. Um, uh, no offense to any particular brand of sunglasses, but that seems to be one that, you know, I've seen a lot of spam about. And I don't know that that necessarily has to do with the company, but it probably has to do with somebody who could make some money by selling them as a third party or something like that. And so trying to... Versions of them. I find them to yeah. be lovely sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you want, you know, you want the AI to be able to say, hey, you know, you, you look good in sunglasses. I think you'd look good in this pair. And to present you with a pair of sunglasses that 
you never would have come across in your local store, right? You might not have found it searching online, but this AI, right, in a way that could be perceived as creepy, but could be perceived as, as incredibly helpful, says, based on these images that you've made available and this bot has access to, you would look good in these sunglasses, right? And if you're somebody who appreciates sunglasses, you will be so grateful for the suggestion. Like, I wouldn't have found these otherwise. This is great. Um, YouTube, right? I mean, I remember I was writing something about artificial intelligence and suddenly realized that the music I was enjoying while listening was essentially suggested by an artificial intelligence, right? This or YouTube playlist. It was, it had gone beyond what I had selected to other things that it thought I would like based on past listening. And I was enjoying it while writing about AI. And there's something kind of nice about that, right? But on the other hand, the AI can potentially filter out some of the things, you know, the trolling and the bots and the automated things that would prevent us from connecting as well on places like online uh, discussion forums, uh, the comment section of a blog or of uh, a Facebook post or something like that. And so it, it won't be fair. It won't get nuance, right? It won't know right, he's the classic example that my uh, colleague in computer science does, it won't know whether without additional information, your mention of Java is looking for uh, coffee, a geographical location, or a computer language. But the things that it can do, do help us, right? And I think that there's an interesting tendency of human beings to treat, to treat technology in a way that is lacking in grace, right? That we fail to appreciate what the machine is doing for us because, you know, we say, oh, the stupid machine, it's not, you know, why doesn't it know that I want this? Or why is it doing this? It's because it's automated. It's because it's a machine. It's not capable of doing things that a human being does. But if that was a person that had a certain, let's say, a, a certain learning disability, a certain kind of um, condition that meant that they perceived the world in this way, and so was not able to do certain things, hopefully we would treat them with grace and we would say they're doing what they can to the best of their ability and gosh, I appreciate it. And yet when a machine does something, maybe does things that we could never do, right? We could never keep up with all the filtering out of comments or vulgarity or spam or whatever if we had to do it on our own for all these blogs, right? And so we should appreciate it. And yet because this one comment that was perfectly good but had this this word that could be taken in more than one way in it or something like that, it gets caught in the spam filter and we don't notice it right away and we say, oh, this stupid technology is, you know, making our lives difficult or whatever. When in fact, we're just failing to appreciate, failing to show grace and appreciation towards the technology and what it does do that's positive. We judge it more harshly than we do other human beings. Yeah, and I, I think an important, an important point to raise there too is, you know, technology appreciation of it is certainly a part of grace. But what we often forget to recognize is that there's a big user aspect to technology. So as we were talking about a little bit before, certainly in the development of it and the AI systems and the bias that could be baked into them. But, you know, think about more common platforms that we use, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Twitters. You know, there's a user element to that. We decide what we post. We decide who we either follow or friend or listen to. Um, we decide how we comment and respond to different things. 
Uh, and certainly I think on some level, on these, you know, many of these online platforms, there's a slightly dehumanization that takes place um, as we interact with people online, a barrier that technology creates, even though it can be so wonderful about connecting people and getting people uh, in touch, uh, some people may take for granted or forget that there are actual other human beings on there with different feelings, emotions, uh, and considerations. You know, do you think religion might have something to teach us here in terms of thinking about how we as individuals uh, not use technology and interact with other interact with others on it? Uh, yes, I think so. Absolutely. Um, and I think it does so both in a, a sort of a, a negative historical cautionary tale kind of way, but also in a positive way. Uh, on the one hand, it, it is clearly the case that as we interact with people, oftentimes complete strangers online through a medium that doesn't let us see their face. We don't always perceive them as a, another human being. We sometimes respond to them in ways that we would not respond if we were sitting across to them, from them. That's absolutely true. And yet we have in the history of human interaction, uh, interaction between nations, interactions between adherents of different religious traditions, not only examples of love, grace, acceptance, listening carefully to the other, valuing them as human beings, even when we disagree, but also dehumanization, demonization, uh, treating of the other in an impersonal way so that we have no hesitation maybe of even killing them, but of denigrating and of misrepresenting their ideas because we put them in this category that we consider to be you know, evil, demonic, subhuman, inhuman, possessed, whatever it is. And we have such a long history of doing those things without the internet and before the internet that I think as with so much technology, we may be in uh, serious danger of blaming the technology for something that is in fact the guilt of human beings and indicative of our own lack of grace towards our fellow human beings that would be there evidenced perhaps not as often, you know, because you can't have conversations with people on the other side of the world or complete strangers that you, you haven't bumped into face to face without the technology. So it is creating opportunities for additional interactions. But apart from the technological mediation, the way we're treating people is a way that we might have treated people otherwise if they were these abstract entities that somebody told us about that live somewhere else. And so I think this is another case of technology not uh, so much causing us to lose touch with grace as exposing our lack of grace. And so it provides us with an opportunity to say, now more than ever, we need to cultivate grace, right? We need to cultivate grace as a, an expression of human interaction, as something that we practice online towards strangers. And that's a teaching that a lot of religious traditions have. Uh, whether or not we've generally tended to put into practice effectively and well and consistently or not, it's there across a wide array of religious traditions. And I think those religious traditions which 
do that and have done that well face-to-face and in letter and in thinking about the other that have had very little contact with because of geographical distance historically. Those religious traditions that have practiced the art of grace have a lot to teach us in an era in which there's more than ever interaction across difference, across language difference, across religious difference, across geographical difference, across national difference, across all the different kinds of difference that human beings are characterized by. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's beautifully said. Uh, you know, I, I just would echo what you said. I, and in some ways, I do think that te- what technology does is amplify our lack of grace as humans. I'll bring part one of my conversation with Brian to an end here, uh, simply because we have a full hour's worth of conversation, full hour's worth of material. And so I will ask you to tune in next week to hear the rest of our conversation, which I think you'll find just as engaging, if not more so, uh, as what we shared this week. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.